Calgary, a sprawling obsession. Episode 3, Boxes Surrounding the Land. In our previous episode, we met with Chris Menderson, longtime biologist and former member of the Park Department for the city of Calgary. During the interview that I had with him, we discussed about many issues surrounding the pressure exerted by the expansion of the city on biodiversity. And when talking about species at risk, there is one thing that he mentioned that was particularly interesting. When I think about other species that are notable, I mean, the first one that comes to mind for me is uh, bison. Um, if you think about Calgary, 150 years ago, the city of Calgary was dominated by bison. The, the landscape was very heavily shaped by bison, and they were almost completely eradicated. They are no longer part of Calgary's landscape. Um, so that's one that, that you know, I, I think it, it doesn't even fit in within most people's worldview to think of Calgary as a bison-dominated landscape, but it was. Um, you know, and... and You know, it's also a, an animal of tremendous importance um, to to the people of Treaty 7, for example, um, who have noted its loss perhaps more keenly than, than um, European settlers have. As we saw in the previous episode, urban sprawl has already had a profound effect on the landscape and biodiversity in the vicinity of Calgary. It exerts pressure on the prairie grassland as well as the parkland natural region. Most of the wetlands within the limits of Calgary have been turned into roads and buildings, and several species of plants and animals that inhabited it even a few decades ago have disappeared. But as illustrated in the case of the bison, these changes don't affect us all in the same way. The end of the presence of some of those species or the dramatic modification of an ecosystem, while being a serious environmental issue for all of us, is accompanied by a significant cultural loss in the case of indigenous people. And knowing how this relationship to the land is central in the multiple indigenous cultures in Canada, it was essential in a podcast discussing the transformation to the land caused by urban sprawl to include their point of view regarding this question. It doesn't even fit in within most people's worldview, but it was. But we must be careful about the way we discuss any issue from the point of view of indigenous people. The first thing is to recognize the diversity that exists within the different indigenous communities and nations in Canada. So attempting to discuss about an issue while taking into account the vision of indigenous people as a whole is either a considerable task that requires method and patience or a simplistic approach of the question. This was laid out by Cora Voyager and Brian Callew, respectively professors of sociology an assistant professor of law at the University of Calgary, in their article, Various Shades of Red, Diversity Within Canada's Indigenous Community. The Aboriginal communities in Canada are multicultural and diverse communities where difference must be recognized. 
Too often, Aboriginal peoples are referred to as a homogeneous group yet they differ substantially in their languages and cultures. Besides cultural differences, Aboriginal groups have had legal definitions imposed upon them by the federal government for purposes of administering their trust-like responsibilities for the benefit of Indians as defined in the Indian Act. This legal definition has resulted in the exclusion of other Aboriginal groups. Therefore, the relationships between the Aboriginal groups and the state can differ substantially, leading to a variety of issues that need to be addressed individually. There is the question of the cultural framework used to analyze the question. If we go back to the example of the bison, a study of the University of Alberta in the context of the reintroduction of bison in Banff showed that their disappearance led to the loss of a central part of the local indigenous community's traditional diet, of knowledge and education regarding the role of bison as ecological engineers in Alberta, of the possibility of creating sacred items, and finally of the emotional relationship with another living creature. This approach goes beyond the Western sense of physical effect on the stakeholders and includes the mental, spiritual, and emotional aspects of the question. So applying the Western framework to the question would be inefficient as well as another proof of a settler mindset in a long history of incomprehension endured by indigenous people from the rest of the Canadian society. And no matter how much non-indigenous people try to inform themselves, this incomprehension leads to mistakes and stereotypes, one way or another. This is the idea behind the slogan, Nothing about us without us. And this is why, more than all the other subjects discussed in this podcast, it was absolutely essential to find the right guest for this topic. Fortunately, I had the chance to meet with Hal Eagletail as part of my work. Hal is an indigenous cultural consultant and a member of the Sutina Nation. The reserve of the Sutina Nation is located southwest of Calgary, and as a signatory nation of the Treaty 7, Calgary is located within its traditional territory. I had the privilege to participate to a sweat lodge ceremony organized by Hal, and the introduction he gave us about the history of the Sutina Nation covers some of the information that you are about to hear. We were all touched by the passion that emanated from him as he shared the traditional stories of his people. And his talents of storyteller were put to good use as he shared these stories, alternating between complex social questions, difficult truths about the condition of indigenous people throughout the history of Canada, and light-hearted moments that appear when different cultures discover what they have in common. This is why I felt that he would be the perfect person to discuss the effects of urban sprawl on the traditional activities of indigenous communities in the region of Calgary. My first question for him was to ask to introduce the Sutina Nation for listeners who might not be familiar with it in order to start off on the right foot. Well, my name is Hal Eagletail. I'm from Sutina Nation. Uh, signatories of Treaty Number no. 7 in southern Alberta. I uh, come from the language group of the Dene. So in Canada, there's over 600 native bands. We all belong to one of 11 language groups. 
My language group is known as Dene. We stretch from Alaska down to Mexico. We're the most populous indigenous uh, group in North America. You have to try to visualize North America as just one big ice shelf after the Ice Age. And our migration actually started from South America. Our language comes from a dialect of the Aztec. And the highest concentration of our Dene people are located at the start of the migration, which is basically New Mexico area, Arizona, uh, Utah, and uh, parts of Colorado. So that's the Navajo Nation, the Apache Nation as well. So as the ice receded along the West Coast, we migrated with the Thaw, what is now California, Oregon State, Washington State, British Columbia, right up to Alaska. And we actually had some people cross the land bridge into Russia. And they got cut off when the thaw happened. And the water, um, I guess, uh, uh, prevented them from crossing back. So the Ket people in Russia are also Dene-speaking. And then the next thaw migration happened along the uh, Mackenzie River Valley in the northern part of the of Canada. So we have Denny in northern Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Yukon, and the Northwest Territories. So basically, our evolution as uh, indigenous uh, Dene people, we kind of followed the mountain ranges and and uh, we uh, evolved. Uh, from a a separation that occurred um, along the mountain range, today known as the Fort St. John, British Columbia Territory, Mm -hmm. uh, Dene there. And we came in from the mountains into the prairies and evolved with the Blackfoot Confederacy and learned the ways of culture, hunting buffalo, teepee culture, the plants, the medicines, um, animals, and... The, uh, the same treaty territory, traditional territory of the Blackfoot, which stretched as far north as the North Saskatchewan River. The Blackfoots, they go as far south as the Yellowstone River. Uh, Sutina boundary, southern boundary is the Missouri River. And then from the Rocky Mountains to the Cypress Hills in Saskatchewan. So this is kind of our traditional territories and our responsibility for our traditional territory wasn't to, to overhunt or overharvest. It was to have a balance of all living things in, the, in those territories. And that was the, um, the onus of the nations and the language groups to protect the uh, environment in those traditional boundaries. It wasn't ownership. It was protection of the balance of natural law. And so in this context of preserving the balance, uh, what are your thoughts about urban sprawl? Uh, because in, since the 50s, there was an eightfold increase of the area of the city. It significantly changed the landscape in the vicinity of Calgary. So from your point of view, is this increase compatible with the traditional activities of the Sutina nation? No, not at all. It wasn't a compatible relationship because you got to remember our our forced, I guess, existence was based on the treaties that we signed. Ours was signed in 1877. And we were allotted areas 
seen fit by the government. It wasn't our personal selections to be in our current reservation sites today. Mm-hmm. However, Sutina was the first nation to select its own reservation lands. And we did this because of a, a really bold head chief we, we called uh, Chilla, and his um, English name was Bullhead. So he decided that after we signed Treaty 7, our allotted land was supposed to be east of the Siksaga Nation, which is 60 miles east of Calgary. And today we would have been in the territory of what they call Pasano. That was our first allocated site for treaty. Now, the other thing was that we had a different language from the Blackfoot and uh, similar traditions, just different customs. So our head chief wanted different lands. And he told two scouts to go southwest of Fort Calgary and look for an abundance of pine trees so that we can build log cabin and we can tell government that we're already building settlements. We want to move our people. So Chilla was a very fierce warrior, stubborn, didn't get along well with the uh, with the European people and the Northwest Mounted Police expansion of the settlements. And um, he was very much uh, militant. So he basically told government, you know, we're going to move our people. Uh, and, and the scouts actually found the first site was along the Sheep River. And uh, a lot of abundance of pine out there, but elders at the time said, you know, beautiful territory. It just really stinks. The land really smells, especially during the spring thaw and the breakup of the, of the uh, rivers. The scouts found another site along the uh, southwest of Fort Calgary, along what we call the Wolf Creek. And they left the rock pile as a marker. The people gathered around that rock pile probably about 1883. And Chilla asked the people, do you want to live here? And the, and the population at the time, which was about 150, we almost died out, you know. Um, when we signed Peace Treaty 7, we had a, maybe about 100 and, uh, 170 population. So what happened was Chilla told every man, woman, and child, do you want to live here on this new chosen land? And the people said yes for two reasons. One, the Moose Mountain, our sacred mountain where our warriors would go and have vision quest and gather their spiritual strength was in uh, visual view. And the second reason was the abundance of medicine that grew in this area. So Chilla told every man, woman, and child to add a stone, grab a stone and add it to the rock pile as a marker for our new lands. But he also made a proclamation. He said, as our population continues to grow, continue to add stone to this site so that it's a marker for our people forever. So every uh, first weekend of May is our Satina holiday. Our kindergarten, our young children, have a rock-placing ceremony on that site. When I was seven years old, I had my rock-placing ceremony. So as the people were gathering their stone, one of our medicine warriors, his name was Eagle Rib, he had a vision. And when the people gathered back to the uh, rock pile to place their stones, Eagle Rib explained his vision. 
He said, this site that we've chosen as a new reserve land is going to benefit our people down the road. I've seen boxes surrounding this land. And when the boxes arrive, our people will live and learn off one another. Back then, we had no word for house. Today, we do. But that's what Eagle Rib's seen, the houses, the boxes surrounding the reserve lands that we've selected. And that's we, that's exactly where we are today. So the urban sprawl that you mentioned was, um, was I guess, I guess pre-determined uh, through vision. It was it was seen in the visions of uh, our our medicine warrior eagle rip. On the twenty second of September, eighteen seventy seven, the Treaty Seven was signed between the Government of Canada and five First Nations, the Siksika, Kainai, Pikani. Stony Nakoda, and Sutina Nations. The Canadian Encyclopedia tells us that David Lair, Lieutenant Governor of the Northwest Territories and Treaty Commissioner, gave verbal assurance to the representatives of the Five Nations that they would be able to continue to hunt and fish within their traditional territories. He listed the benefits that the nations could gain from signing the treaty, such as the protection of bison, whose population was already declining at that time. But in the same speech, Lair indicated that the Canadian government wanted to support the transition of indigenous people to farming, as the bison would probably disappear from the prairie in the near future. This shows us that from the earliest contacts between Canadian settlers and indigenous populations, the will to change the traditions of the latter to make them more compatible with the progress envisioned by the first one was already present. And these changes continued as the expansion of the city encroached more and more on the territory of the Treaty Seven Nations, forcing them to progressively change their traditional activities. You know, when we became gathering people following the buffalo herds, we were forced into a new lifestyle of becoming agriculturalists, farmers. And because our survival instinct as, as indigenous people is so uh, adaptable, mm-hmm. we were able to become very successful farmers and have uh, very successful crops. So much so that government put into policy Uh, for the Indian agents to kind of slow us down and, and, and to, to slow down the harvest or, or to try to invoke the uh, harvests to rot and to sit in storage. And, you know, they did all these things to prevent us from being successful. And this is the reason why today there's all these claims coming to the government called cows and plows our ability to be able to be successful at a new lifestyle was inhibited by these Indian agents. And that caused us a great famine, and a great hardship within our, our nation. And then we became dependent on the, the government rations that were promised with the treaties we signed. So basically, 
from a very independent, uh, sovereign people able to take care of themselves, forced by government onto reservations to become dependent on handouts. Um, once we tried to be successful on our own within these compounds of the compounds of the reserve lands, um, they basically made us into um, uh, uh, what we call Fort Indians. The city planner actually lived adjacent to the Supuna Reserve, uh, which became known as the, the Glenmore Reservoir. So the Glenmore Reservoir, when when the, the 30s hit, hardship hit with the recession at the time, the, the Great Depression, the, the mayor of Calgary wanted to, to create employment, and they built this reservoir as a means of uh, putting people to work during those hard days. And there was a homestead, original homestead, where the uh, base of the, the flooding was to happen for the Glenmore Reservoir. This uh, homesteader's name was Sam Livingston. So they took his house, they propped it out, and they actually moved it on top of the hill, which later became known as Heritage Park. And uh, Sam Livingston's house, you can actually still go and visit it at Heritage Park today. Sam Livingston had a neighbor. He was a Cree, and he did a lot of bad deals and and uh, con conning deals to people, so much so that he, he was actually murdered in that area. And his name is Weasel Head. And because the practice was to name an area after something bad, hence the name the Weasel Head. So his shack is probably still under the reservoir and probably some type of, uh, you know, fish home. <laughs> Anyways, as they flooded this, this uh, reservoir, the south end of that was the city planner, Calgary engineer, and he did not want to plan any type of infrastructure through his property. And this is why... As, as the city of Calgary sprawl grew further west and southwest of the fort, the original fort at the, at the, at the meeting place of the bow and the elbow, this is where Calgary kind of painted themselves into a corner with regards to uh, through fair infrastructure on the southwest corridor. And when this, uh, engineer planner had passed on his his family sold uh, or was probably annexed by the city of calgary past elbow drive so west of elbow drive they started to build roads and the community developments the very first structure that was built before any houses were built was uh the oak ridge co-op the oak ridge shopping plaza there that was the original first uh, development that came up, and then the and then the sprawl happened around it, right up to the boundary of our reserve lands. But 
The thing is that, in spite of those treaties, there were still some projects that allowed the city to expand within the reserve that was awarded to the Sutina nation. Uh, I mean, awarded is probably not the right word to define a situation where people were already there, but that was how it was defined in the Treaty 7. But even if the treaty clearly defined the distribution of the land, there were still some pushes from the government to use some of that land that was supposed to be under the sole jurisdiction of the Sutina nation. Is, is that correct? Yes. And this was actually the Glenmore Reservoir. It wasn't the Tutina that went into an agreement with the city of Calgary. It was the Department of National Defense that negotiated a way our, our portion of the land, which is now flooded over by the reservoir. So we went to court. We won the court battle. There was a settlement paid back in, I think it was 85, uh, about the Glenmore Reservoir claim that we didn't give up that land. It was the government's uh, arm of national defense that, that negotiated that away from us without our consent. But that's always been the practice of government, you know. So when you look at the depth of a plow that we only allowed the settlers to, to have ownership over the land of, legally, Canada had to go past the depth of a plow to take the natural resources away from the native title. So they did this by what they call the Natural Resource Transfer Act in 1930. They didn't consult with the native people. They didn't say, hey, we want to go past the depth of a plow and rape the resources away from you and the wealth of Canada away from you. But we will, however, put into trust, a land trust. And the government pays the 600-plus native bands uh, kind of like a, a rent from this trust. And... There's no taxpayer dollars that go to the natives. There's no taxpayer dollars that go to uh, providing services on reserve for us. It's all from this land trust from the natural resources. And they, they dip into it all the time. So when there's a stimulus package, when the economy you know, has a, has a, has a fallout, they try to stimulate the economy by by paying out big corporations, you know, billions of dollars. When there's world conflict and they donate, you know, billions of dollars, millions of dollars uh, for war efforts or for food aid, where do they think the money comes from? It comes from this land trust that was, that's entitled to the First Nations people from the resource development of, of, of the past the depth of a plow. So there's a lot of conspiracy. There's a lot of uh, unknown facts that Canadians had no idea that this land trust existed. And still to this day, they don't. Now, this is where reconciliation comes in. So this is all the truth. We've got to tell all these truths so that reconciliation can start to flow here. As Hal mentioned, there are lots of rumors surrounding the existence of the Indian Trust Fund, which led the Yellowhead Institute to release the Indian Trust Fund, debunking myths and misconceptions, a document specifically designed to diffuse those rumors. According to this document, 
the Indian Trust Fund was created in 1858 with the objective to hold funds of First Nations that come from the sale or lease of lands and from royalties and revenues from natural resources. As of 2018, the Indian Trust balance sits at over $634 million. This money is managed by the regional indigenous services offices. But for a long period, the Department of Indian Affairs, now known as the Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada, had important decision powers regarding the way this money was spent. Historically, the government used it to pay for treaty annuities and capital projects on reserves, but also some projects that had little to do with the life of indigenous people. Some of the non-indigenous beneficiaries of the funds include the City of Toronto, the Montreal Turnpike Trust, the Desjardins Canal, York Roads, the Grand River Navigation Company, the Grand River Bridge, and other the Grand River Bridge and other infrastructure projects that supported the progressive urbanization and industrialization of Canada. In other words, the money taken away from the First Nations was used to transform the sacred land of which they were the guardians into productive land capable of bringing prosperity to a booming capitalist economy. It is mentioned that more thorough examination of individual band accounts would be the only way to uncover the possible loss of funds. It can be argued that, in the same way than the provincial or federal taxes, this money that arises from natural resources should profit to all Canadians, indigenous or not. But the rules laid out by the government itself indicated that the money in this trust was secured for the sole benefit of First Nations. By using it for other projects, it did not simply violate the agreements passed with the First Nations. By using it for other projects, it did not simply violate the agreements passed with the First Nation governments, it also impacted budgets for services such as teachers' salaries or agricultural implements on reserves that are supposed to be financed by the Trust, contrary to the ones outside of the reserves that depend on the provincial and federal budgets. So as for the numbered treaties, the history of the Indian Trust Fund is marred by broken promises and disregard for the sovereignty of the nations that were supposed to benefit from it. So, over the past century, the city kept sprawling with some projects closed or within the reserves. Some of the listeners are probably familiar with the ring road that passes through the territory of the Sutina nation and that caused some debates even within the nation. So, based on your knowledge, following the first decades after the birth of Calgary, where there was basically no collaboration from the government, it would just come and take whatever was needed, how did the situation evolve regarding the relationship between the city of Calgary and the Sutina nation? I do know that we've always had a spirit of cooperation. In uh, 1908, we went into negotiation with the Department of National Defense to lease land on our reserve for military training. And we actually had the uh, CFB Calgary training on our land right up until the former uh, Prime Minister of Canada, um, Jean Chrétien, basically shut down the, the, the base and, and moved it up to Edmonton. So from 1908 to 1997, we had done our war efforts by using our land for military training of 
of the Canadian Armed Forces. And then we started to talk about the Ring Road and the corridor of development we can that we can uh, plan. And we figure we would probably double the amount of employment opportunity, career op- opportunity for Calgarians, probably to about 55, 60,000 people through the construction of the road and and uh, and um, workers in, in the development of the of the plans we put together. So it's a really unique relationship that Calgary and Sutina have always nurtured as neighbors. You know, the First Nation neighbor and also a, a, a valuable uh, uh, economic boost and uh, job creation for Calgarians that exists there today because of, you know, and this is goes back to Eagle Rib's prophecy. When the boxes arrive, our people live and learn off one another. So when we decided to develop this corridor, we shopped around, we put bids out there, and we agreed to a $5 billion development called Taza. And Taza translates to uh, something exciting is coming. Taza, 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 the old story is, uh, mm-hmm. as, as it was told, something is coming, something exciting is coming. So this $5 billion development, we now looked at how can we control the urban sprawl within the contours of the natural environment, the natural flow of the runoff, and and how can we keep the uh, environmental uh, impact or footprint to a minimum? And um, we actually won national awards for how we can incorporate environmental um, inclusion within this this multi billion dollar development, and and this is an example of Calgary sprawl should follow. How do we adapt to the sprawl to the environment? So you just mentioned a few different development projects where the Sutina Nation tried to ensure that the approval process wasn't properly with adequate collaboration with the city of Calgary, as well as having projects that account for their environmental footprint. But all the previous projects that were not managed with the same care have already taken their toll on the landscape and biodiversity around Calgary. So could you give us an idea of what changed in the traditional activity that maybe you were practicing before and that you can't anymore, or even more critically, if you compare to the activities of your ancestors? And also, how do you perceive the evolution in the future if you look at the current situation? Well, it uh, it did happen already, that uh, loss of habitat from the first Europeans coming east to west. The grizzly bear, the wolf, all of these animals we now associate with the Rocky Mountain area, we took over their traditional lands, the prairies. The prairies was the territory of the grizzly bear, was the territory of the wolf. Why do you think we had long spears? It wasn't to go into battle with. It was to protect us from attack of grizzlies and wolves and to, to keep them at bay. That's why we had long spears. So 
we basically forced the environment into uh, the confines of of the mountains because they had nowhere else to go. There's just too much population um, expansion and sprawl. So that will continue to happen unless we start thinking like our relatives on the West Coast. They were the inventors of this condominium type, you know, longhouse structure where many families lived under the roof of just one one dwelling. And if we look at building up instead of out, then we're just following the uh, respectful uh, uh, Mother Earth's natural beauty by, by not overdeveloping. So, you know, rather than building the boxes sprawling out, let's build the boxes going up, vertical, vertical build. These, these are just common sense environmental practices that will save the environment and that will prevent us from, from overpopulating. So we're just, again, painting ourselves into a corner, you know, by just continuously building, sprawling outwards. And probably another 50 years from now, <clears throat> because of this urban sprawl, Calgary is going to paint itself into a corner again by needing transportation corridor access uh, from from north to south. So I think this this ring road that we just approved and developed is probably the first of many in the future ring roads. This is probably the inner road. There's going to be an outer road, I'd say, in about 50 years as they keep sprawling and sprawling. Do you think it makes sense to talk about reconciliation if we keep building on indigenous traditional territories? I think the best thing, though, is that what we're laying right now, the groundwork, the foundation, two generations from now are going to show the benefits of this reconciliation. First and foremost, the truth comes first. Just like the... Uh, The, the word itself, truth and reconciliation. We need to tell the truth and we need to acknowledge the truth of the colonial um, historical traumas inflicted on the indigenous people, not just in Canada, U.S., Australia, India, New Zealand, you know, any, any Commonwealth state, the, uh, the, um, doctrine of discovery, you know, which is totally uh, a crazy concept to the original inhabitants of these places, because how can you discover something when there's already people there? Hmm. So I think the history of the past is catching up to us legally. It's going to catch up to us in the courts. Unfortunately, everything is written in English, developed from English judges, lawyers, Um, politicians so it's always a fight for the indigenous people because nothing is, is spoken in our language the only benefit I think is that our treaties incorporated the natural laws that we included so we, we, we decided to share the land with the newcomers the, 
depth of a plow so that they can build agriculture and live. So long as the sun shines, the grass grow, and the rivers flow, we'll honor this agreement. We put these natural laws in there. If these natural laws cease to exist, well, does that mean we have to renegotiate the treaties? We have to look at being responsible for the historical traumas that were inflicted on Native people, starting with residential school. And anyone out there, simply Google Sir John A. MacDonald on your cell phone right now. And what will come up is that Sir John A. MacDonald, first Prime Minister of Canada, enacted an assimilation policy to wipe out the Indigenous people of Canada. And then there's also what will come up is Sir John A. Macdonald bragging that he's holding back the rations to the reserves after we sign these peace treaties to starve out the natives. So that's the policy of the historical trauma that is now catching up to to the reconciliation efforts. So all of these wrongs are starting to catch up. This is the reconciliation efforts of the Harper government. And right up until uh, Prime Minister Jean Chrétien and Pierre Elliott Trudeau, they had the doctrine of um, assimilation still, and they called it the white paper. So this white paper policy that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, Pierre de Trudeau, tried to enact was, was fought. And it was actually the, the First Nations of Alberta that countered the white paper with our red paper. And this is how we're able to quash that assimilation practice. Now, they still try to maneuver politically us into giving up our, our rights to our lands, our our abilities to govern ourselves and be sovereign within our own nation lands. They're withholding funding and making us sign these 10-year agreements where there's no renegotiation clause after 10 years. They're basically grooming us to become <clears throat> municipalities. So this is the uh, political landscape of how we have to outsmart and maneuver ourselves to protect our land, our rights, our sovereignty, to practice that, um, you know, we want to have our identity for the future generations, seven generations from now. So this is, this is now on the shoulders of the future and the politicians that lead us in, in our existence today. Do they have the foresight, the vision to include the environment as part of their priorities to to become reelected or to become a politician in the first place. And if they, if they can incorporate this one, they're thinking like a indigenous person and two, they're helping out the future generations to have a clean air, clean water, 
subsequent to the animal's healing of the plants and medicine's existence from the Mother Earth that Creator blessed us with. When the Treaty 7 was signed, the representatives of the five First Nations thought that they were agreeing to a peace treaty, ensuring pacific cohabitation between people of different cultures. As we all know today, indigenous people in Canada have faced a very different reality in the intervening century. The violence that they experienced, whether physical, psychological, or even administrative, was the result of an effort of dehumanization, with the cultural differences seen as an obstacle to the natural evolution of Canada. Decades of acculturation meant that new generation of indigenous leaders started to adopt some of the tools of the colonizers and tried to adapt to this forced march of progress. But in return, the Canadian society never tried to understand the point of view of indigenous people, because it never was part of the deal struck with them at Blackfoot Crossing almost 150 years ago. Some progresses were made, as the voices of those that experienced this violence got louder and more numerous, but we are still a long way from the pacific coexistence hoped by the First Nations that signed those treaties. As we conclude this series, this forced march of progress, no matter what the cost is, appears to be the common thread throughout the different topics that we explored. Whether it is benefits of a balanced urban design that will only pay off in the long term, fragile ecosystems and ecological benefits that don't fit the framework of development policies, or the rights of indigenous people to dispose of the small amount of land they still manage, it seems that nothing should stand in the way of the city's growth. In the face of the ecological and climatic crisis we are facing, we know that this kind of vision of the world must be left in the past. The different specialists we met showed us that this is a complex matter with competing interests. So we know that these changes will probably not happen overnight, which is also why we can't afford to delay even more the evolution towards a more sustainable future. Finally, resolving the issue of urban sprawl will also involve some changes in our vision of the world and our relationship with people that surround us. It will mean sharing more and opening ourselves to others rather than focusing on our own benefits first. The good news is that this kind of attitude will also have a lot of positive impacts on a lot of other environmental, social or economic issues that we are trying to solve. It's time to understand that one person left behind in a society is a collective failure. And once we break free from the notion that success is solely an individual endeavor, we will know that we are finally on the right track. And before we wrap this up, and also to give you some food for thoughts, I wanted to give the last word to all the great guests we heard throughout this series. The best way to know if this podcast fulfilled its mission is to start as many conversations on the topic of urban sprawl as possible. And to help with that, I asked to all of my guests about one idea that they would think could help to change the narrative surrounding urban sprawl in Calgary. I'll leave you with their answers. Use your inventive mind. That's what Creator blessed us with. 
even the native people, when we do our ceremony, there's going to be the old thinkers that say, when you light your pipe, you have to use a wooden match. You can't use a lighter. That's our own demise, our own downfall of looking at innovative alternatives. Instead of using that match, use that lighter. You know, a hundred years ago, when our ancestors were trying to start a fire and it was raining for five days and the woods all soaking wet and damp, you don't think they would throw a little gas on there if they had it? Don't be crazy, you know? So let's use our innovative minds Creator blessed us with so that we're giving back and we're creating balance again. That every politician have an environmental platform for their writing so that constituents are more conscious about the environment today. They'll back up a politician that has a great environmental platform. So the, the platform of the future is what's your environmental platform? How are you going to protect the environment in our riding? How are we going to coexist? What measures are you going to put in place where we can grow vegetation along the walls of the, the big concrete towers we built? That's the future outlook. The most important thing for me has always been to think about um, wild spaces, nature within the city as city building itself. That we need to think about nature as part of the city and that healthy ecosystems will give us healthier communities and healthy people, I think. So it's a matter of finding, asking all the questions that we should be asked about intensification, about alternative transportation, all of those things that make a city more compact, more sustainable, and hopefully more affordable in the long run. But I think we need to be saying, are we protecting nature appropriately? Are we giving nature the space to do the things that it needs to do in the city? And I don't think we're quite there yet. We, we acknowledge that it's important, then we kind of let things happen the way they have been, and then point to density and alternative transportation and all those sorts of things as being wins. I think we need to strive for both. We need to strive for better planned, more diverse, more affordable cities, but also then making sure that we protect the important spaces, that we see land use for nature as important as a land use for uh, for homes and businesses. That's the key thing, is right now they're not. It's an afterthought, and it should be, um, I think, the first thing we think about when we grow. We know Albertans love nature. We know they connect with it, and it's part of our identity. Katie Morrison, Executive Director of CIPOS for Southern Alberta. And, and it kind of goes back to what I was saying about allowing or designing that within a city so that people people can't care about something they don't know or don't experience or it's much harder. So there is an element of people being able to connect with nature in their city and understanding their place in nature, understanding natural, natural systems, and then that translating to wanting more nature protection more broadly because they have that deeper understanding of nature. 
the framework for Imagine Calgary was to think about the city as a series of systems. Byron Miller, professor of geography at the University of Calgary. As opposed to just individual parcels or, or, or developments. Uh, so to think about cities as systems, I think, is really important. And, you know, it's, it's not the easiest thing to grasp. But nonetheless, I think we can do it. And I think we need to think about the interrelationship of environmental, social, and economic systems, and, and to talk about that more. The other thing that I think we could do is to highlight some of the counterexamples to what we have not been doing well. There are lots of good examples out there in the world, and, and we should be talking more about them. I think actually one of the most unproductive things that we have done in Calgary is to say, you know, we need a made in Calgary solution. I would like us instead to say, let's look at the best things that have been done all over the world and borrow them and make Calgary the amalgamation of the best of the world. We're still living in young cities. Francisco Alanis Uribe, assistant professor of urbanism at the University of Calgary. So we are going through this period where we that luxury is starting to be challenged. But if we look to older cities across the world, there is an understanding that that luxury of having everybody having their own private space is not longer there. What we need to focus on is that the public realm, the areas that are for everybody, that they are of high quality. And this is something that we then see in, in some livable cities, let's say, The examples that I know of in Europe is where a lot of people live in multifamily, they live in an apartment, but the public ground is of high quality. So this space where they can go and, and play and bring their kids and, and have lots of green areas of different qualities, and this system of public spaces offers to them a lot more than if they just have their own uh, own private space. And and the, the difficult thing about understanding that is that we're not yet being hit by the impact on our daily basis, right? What we see in Calgary, we still have these beautiful blue skies. We don't see the pollution, right? That perhaps in other cities uh, you see and you can clearly see the deterioration of your environment. So... To, it's still hard to convince people of this when there are not direct, clear impacts to them. So we have to make those impacts clearly and explain and educate and have these conversations. And, and those impacts need to be um, accounted for in terms of money, at least, right? Uh, very environmentally as well. We want our cake and we want to eat it too. Tricia Stadnik, researcher in hydrology at the University of Calgary. We love nature especially in Canada, we're drawn to nature. And here in Alberta, uh, we love the outdoors and we appreciate it and we value it. But we value it so long as we don't need to give something up. And the minute that it costs us something personally, uh, whether that be land, having a big backyard and a fancy house with the mountain view, or whether that be uh, financially in our pocketbooks, then we will put ourselves first. And that isn't a Canadian thing. That isn't an Albertan thing. That is a human thing. Um, and this is something that has plagued us um, and climate scientists around the world. But 
you know, it's time for us really uh, as humans to take more of the stance that the First Nations and Indigenous peoples take, which is that land and nature is not something to be owned. We don't own it. We live within it and we are part of it. And if we continue to make the same mistakes of the past, and if we continue to damage it and exploit it, nature always wins. So if we don't learn to live with and within the confines that nature presents us, um, then we're going to pay the price one way or the other, right? And it's it's going to be very costly to us. So I would encourage Albertans to look at their lifestyle and say, what small choices can I make that maybe I'm not giving something up, but I'm just changing the way in which I'm doing things so that I can live in better harmony with nature. Calgary, a sprawling obsession, is a podcast created as part of the 2022-2023 edition of the Canadian Wilderness Stewardship Program, managed by the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society. I thank them for their support, advices, and motivation to help me to complete this project successfully. I also wanted to express my gratitude towards my excellent guests, Chris Menderson, Byron Miller, Francisco Alanis Uribe, Tricia Stadnik, Katie Morrison, and Hal Eagletail. A special thank you to Frisia for her unfailing support. And shout out to Nina Stone for her help with the transcription of the interviews. Music used throughout the podcast is from Olexi, Alexei Chistilin, Kai Engel, Plasticine Cowboy, Tristan Lohengrin, Olizna Raps, Andy G. Cohen, and Yiri Semshishin. You can find all the details in the description of this episode. If you are a Calgarian interested in questions around the environment and climate change and want to do something about it, there are lots of organizations that are welcoming new volunteers as well as donations. If you want some names to start your search, you can contact the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, the Calgary Climate Hub, or the Calgary Alliance for the Common Good. Please note that the ideas developed in this podcast are my own but don't necessarily reflect the vision of the organizations and people involved in this project. If you want to discuss or follow my other ventures, you can find me on Mastodon at Delaplane Productions at earthstream.social. Thanks again to all of you, and stay wild, Calgary. <laughs>